Uh, it's a very rare message that I have to bring to you this morning, um, one that doesn't particularly have a, a passage that I, I could ask you to turn to. Um, normally, I walk through a passage. Even when I'm preaching topically, normally I walk through just one passage. Um, but I wanted to go, I needed, I felt compelled to go in a different direction this morning. Um, many of you were present two weeks ago when my wife and I were in Florida for the purpose of officiating a wedding of, of one of our good friends, of two of our good friends, in fact, getting married. And there was a group here from another church in the area that were, were kind enough to fill my shoes for me while I was gone. Now, many of you were not here on that day as I look out. Just, just a few of the families were. Um, as your pastor, we all understand that it is my responsibility to feed this body, to protect this body. And I have taken care through various means, I always do, to ensure that while I was gone, you would be led appropriately. Uh, I knew that things would be a bit different stylistically while I was gone. I had made the decision to give that a shot to see how that would go. And um, yet, as I listened to the message, uh, I, Matt recorded it for me, as I listened to the message, um, I was a bit surprised by what I heard. Um, many of you have given me feedback from the message. Um, I felt the message was one that brought more confusion than it brought clarity. And as your shepherd, it is my responsibility to ensure that that confusion becomes clarity. I stand before God to answer for who I have in this pulpit when I'm gone, just like I stand before God to answer for what I say when I'm here. And because of that, um, if anybody was greatly confused or perhaps um, um, offended by anything that was mentioned by the young man who spoke, I apologize. I take responsibility for that. And I hope that this morning um, my message will perhaps add clarity. I don't think that the young man was wrong or heretical in anything he said per se. Um, I don't agree with him on everything he said. If I was going to another church and heard the message, I'd say, well, I don't agree with him, but okay. But it wasn't another church. It came from this pulpit. And um, this pulpit is a pulpit that God has given me stewardship over. And so I'm going to preach a message this morning uh, with the intent that um, it will clarify a topic that uh, perhaps a young man of his age and experience had no topic delving into, or had no business delving into quite yet. He was a young man just in Bible college, and he was speaking on the spirit realm, which is a big, big topic. So I'm going to do my best today in one message to clarify. This will not be a message that's pointed on all of the elements of the spirit realm, but I want to clarify what was mentioned, and in doing so, I trust that any other questions you might have, you will bring to me in a setting where I can sit down with you and open a Bible and answer any questions that you might have. The topic presented that morning was indeed the spirit realm. Our brother in Christ attempted to paint for you a picture of the reality of the spirit realm through several stories, several anecdotes pertaining to secondhand accounts of spiritual happenings. And he parked on two particular concepts throughout his message. His first concept was that we must not ignore the spirit realm. His second concept was that we must have a healthy respect for the spirit realm. Both of these concepts are absolutely true, are absolutely true. But I'd like to take some time this morning, as I've mentioned, to clarify the biblical record as it pertains to the spirit realm and how it touches us today in a very generalized way. 
So um, forgive me, this won't be as expositional as a normal message would be, but please take it in the spirit that it is intended and for the purpose with which it is intended. A very topical message, a brief survey of the topic. And we begin with a question. What is the spirit realm? There are numerous instances in the scriptures where we see it taught that apart from the material world, there is a spirit world. I don't think any of us who are born-again believers would doubt the fact that there is indeed such thing as a spirit world. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us God is a spirit, right? And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The material world is that world that is bound by laws which God has created to govern the universe. The material world has mass. It has substance. It's governed by the laws of physics. It's the world that we see. It's the world that we hear. It's what we feel. It's what affects us in a naturalistic way on a day-by-day basis. We live in a material world. We see things with eyes that are material. We see material things. As light reflects off of things, that hits our eyes and we are able to perceive color. We're able to perceive shape. We're able to perceive depth if God has blessed us with um, health. All of these things. We, we hear through vib- the vibration of our eardrum as, as waves are, are... All of the things that pertain unto physics, all of the things that pertain unto this world, as they're interacting one with another, we interact with this material world. The spiritual world, on the other hand, is a, it's still a creation of God without question, but it operates outside of that which is material. It is not governed by time. It is not governed by the laws of physics. It is immaterial. It is ethereal. It can't be seen. It can be interacted with. It can visibly manifest itself, but it is in a different realm. And what we're going to talk about today, as you see this diagram, is that little yellow area in the middle where the spirit realm intersects with the material realm. The Bible tells us that the spirit world has the capacity by the decree of God, by his permission, to interact with the material world in various ways. The examples of such in the Bible are more numerous than we could possibly mention today. In fact, it's one of the primary themes throughout almost every account in Scripture is God's interaction with man in some capacity, oftentimes by an inner interaction between the spirit world and the material world. But I'd like us to touch on a few as we understand this concept of the spirit realm. The first interaction we see in the Bible between the spirit and the physical realms is found as early as the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Adam has just hearkened unto his wife and in willful rebellion against God's revealed word, he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Soon after... The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And these two, Adam and Eve, in guilt and shame over their sin, particularly because they knew that they were naked, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's only one member of the Trinity that has ever taken on human form, who has ever interacted with man in a in a visible manifestation, and that's the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. So we recognize that as far back as Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it is indeed the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who is interacting with Adam and Eve. 
in the Old Testament, the manifestation of God in human form was often called the angel of the Lord. It is unambiguous in the Old Testament that the angel of the Lord is, is also the second person of the Trinity. Quite regularly, we see messengers from God come to various people. Sometimes that messenger is called an angel of the Lord. Sometimes that messenger is called by a name, such as Gabriel. And yet what we see is that angels always refused worship. Angels always refused mankind's attempts to fall down at their feet, to worship them, to give them reverence. But the angel of the Lord, as we see him all throughout the Old Testament, accepts worship gladly. The angel of the Lord quite regularly speaks of himself and he says, I will do something. And then he'll say, and the Lord will do this. And so quite regularly we see unambiguously, and, and that's not the topic today. The topic is not, is the angel of the Lord the second person of the Trinity? So we'll, we'll, we've taught it before, we'll get there again. But we see quite regularly that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is indeed the second person of the Trinity. And so there's little, in doubt that, little doubt that there this is the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. We wouldn't call him Jesus Christ yet. We'd call him God the Son who interacted with Adam and Eve. This figure, the angel of the Lord, would continue to be very active throughout the Old Testament. He would appear to Hagar. He would appear to Abraham, to Sarah, to Moses, to the entire nation of Israel several times. He would appear to Balaam. He would appear to Gideon, to Manoah and his wife. That would be the parents of Samson to Samuel and to the other prophets. The angel of the Lord was active all throughout his, uh, the Old Testament and the history of the Old Testament. And each time we see this, what we are witnessing is a spiritual being interacting in a physical world. But we've already mentioned it's not just God himself that does such things. God would often send spiritual representatives to interact with the material world, sometimes visibly, sometimes invisibly. We talked this morning in Sunday school about this same topic. It, it just so happened that it, it intersected this week. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Elisha and his servant are in a city called Dothan. The king of Syria was upset at Elisha. The king of Syria kept laying traps for the king of Israel. And as they were campaigning one against another, Elisha kept telling the king of Israel, hey, the king of Syria has a trap for you set up here. Don't go that way. Hey, the king of Israel or the king of Syria has a trap for you here. Don't go there. And the king of Syria was really angry. He was so angry, he said, we must have a spy. We've got to have a spy. Find out who the spy is. And, and his servant said, sir, it's not a spy. Their prophet is a prophet of the Lord. And he keeps telling the, his king what you're thinking. He knows what you're thinking in your bedchamber because he's a servant of the living God. King says, okay, we've got to kill this prophet. So he sends his army to Dothan and he surrounds Dothan with his army, with men and with chariots. Elisha's servant awakes the next day and he finds this city surrounded and he fearfully runs in and tells his master of the impending doom. That's what we see in 2 Kings 16 verses 14 and 15. Therefore sent he hither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, and host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? What are we going to do? Elisha is unaffected by this issue. 
And he states confidently in verse 16, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Fear not, he says, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And I'm sure Elisha's servant was a little confused. He sees him. He sees Elisha. He sees an army around them. And he says, what could he possibly mean by they that be with us be more than they that be with them? And Elisha, seeing the confusion on his servant's face, continues in verse 17 and prays a prayer. Verse 17 says, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Elisha saw something that the young servant did not through eyes of not just faith, but literally the Lord had opened Elisha's eyes to such things. And Elisha prayed and the Lord opened his servant's eyes to the reality that there was a heavenly host of horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. So Elisha was not concerned. Now, these horses and chariots of fire didn't do anything in the battle. Elisha ended up walking up to the army, which was blinded, the scriptures say. And whether that blindness was physical blindness or spiritual blindness, they don't tell us. But Elisha went and said, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Elisha. He said, well, let me lead you where you need to go. And so he led the army to Samaria, where the armies of Israel were. And Israel went and slaughtered them all. And so there was a spiritual blindness that we see. We see these spiritual chariots protecting Elisha. The spirit realm was, was alive and well, though no one could necessarily see it. Elisha was never afraid because he knew that the mountains were full of chariots of fire protecting the man of God. Elisha was not afraid because he knew that in the spiritual sense, the, the, the servants of the Lord were protected by God and the decree of the spirit realm. We could speak further if we had time of other accounts of messengers of God speaking to men and women in the Bible. Quite regularly, we hear about the angel Gabriel. Uh, we just got through a season, right? Where we read much about the angel Gabriel as he appears to Mary and announces the birth of Messiah, as he appears previously to Zechariah in the temple and announces the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, the angel that appears to the shepherds and the heavenly hosts uh, crying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. We see plenty of historical accounts of the spirit realm interacting with the material realm. And yet, as we see these accounts, we recognize that it's not just spirit of God or spirits from God that interact with the material realm, is it? It's not only representatives of God. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we see the account of a serpent speaking to Eve and deceiving her into eating of the fruit of the tree, which God said they may not. This serpent is the devil, one we know of as Satan. Satan is given this declaration or given this designation as the old serpent in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. He's called the great dragon, the old serpent, the devil, and Satan. And so we recognize that this old serpent, 
was indeed Satan himself deceiving Eve in the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible tells us the serpent questioned the Word of God, the love of God, the goodness of God, and thus caused Eve to pursue her own lusts at the expense of personal obedience to God. Throughout Scripture, we see Satan and his demons hard at work in this world. Just as God worked, not only through spiritual messengers, but through human messengers, such as prophets and priests, so too Satan has always worked through human messengers as well, as well as through divine, not divine, spiritual, excuse me. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12, we see God give specific instruction concerning those men and women who interact with the demonic realm. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10 and 11, the Bible says this, There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. The concept of causing a child to pass through the fire was literally the idea of child sacrifice, a heinous act quite common as a demonic expectation of worship. Satan and his minions have always desired child sacrifice. And so the idea of passing a child through the fire was this. There was an idol, a stone idol, and his name was Molech. And they would have this idol fashioned with hands out like this, stone hands over a pit. And they would heat up the fire under those hands until they glowed red. And then they would take their babies, firstborn, and they would place their children on those hands and watch as that baby was consumed in fire. And this was an expectation of the demonic realm for these children. We are not too far from that today with the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of babies that are killed weekly. Um, It's just a different form of sacrificing to Molech. God called it an abomination and he expressly forbid the sacrificing of children. A person who used divination was a person who sought for special knowledge of current events or of things around their world by means of consorting with demonic spirits. Demonic spirits leading people into knowledge that they would not otherwise have. We talked in Sunday school this morning about a modern um, idea that does likely um, stem from this, one that farmers would know well, the divining rod. The divining rod. Nobody knows how those things work, but it still talks about divining something. Um, probably not something that we as believers should be involved with. The observer of times <coughs> excuse me, was a person who sought to tell fortunes through various spiritual means. That would be card reading, that would be palm reading, that would be um, reading whatever it might be that they decide to read. The enchanter was one who used demonic power to manipulate the environment around them such as the enchanters in Egypt who were able to reproduce some of Moses' plagues, you recall? The first several plagues, the enchanters in Egypt were actually able to reproduce. They were able to bring more frogs out of the water. They were able to turn the water into blood. They were enchanters, and the demonic realm gave them power to do some of these things. 
Witchcraft and wizard, wizardry are a, um, a synonymous concepts. They're mentioned different <coughs> uh, in different places here. Um, one is typically spoken of in the female sense, a witch, and the, the male sense is typically the wizard. They have made some some agreement with demonic spirits in order to be endowed with supernatural powers. Typically, these powers allow them to curse something or someone or to bring something or someone under their power, whether it's a curse in the painful sense or it's, it's a, um, a love curse or whatever it might be. There are lots of different ideas out there, but this is witchcraft. This is wizardry. And it always has to do with making some sort of compact with the demonic realm. A charmer was a person who used particular words which when uttered possessed the ability to spiritually uh, influence the world around them or to materially influence. People that actually could, this would be like Balaam, who Balak sought because Balak knew that whoever Balaam cursed was cursed, whoever Balaam blessed was blessed. His words had power through some spirit. That would be a charmer. A consulter of familiar spirits was a man or a woman who communicated with a particular demon and that demon would do their bidding for for various um, purposes. And then finally, a necromancer was one who was able to call upon the spirits of the dead rather than calling upon a demon, typically through a familiar spirit, typically through some um, demonic person who could, uh, demonic um, entity that could then call up the spirits of the dead. Now, examples of these practices, uh, which the Bible calls an abomination unto the Lord, are everywhere, particularly in the Old Testament. First uh, Samuel chapter twenty-eight, verse eight. I'm sorry, I know. Buckle your seatbelts. We're just moving this morning. First Samuel twenty-eight, eight. Saul disguised himself. The scriptures tell us, and put on other raiment, and went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit and bring me up him whom I shall name unto thee. In this passage, we see King Saul go to a woman who had a familiar spirit, unto whom he requested to bring up the spirit of of a man who he would request. She says, who do you want to see? He says, I want you to bring up the prophet Samuel. Samuel was dead by that point. Saul's request was that this woman would consult with the spirit, the demonic spirit who she was consorting with, to bring up the spirit of Samuel out of Abraham's bosom in order to consult with him. Much to the surprise of everyone in the room, including the woman with the familiar spirit, Samuel actually appeared and spoke with Saul. Now, the young man two weeks ago had mentioned that the spirits of the dead do not roam the earth. The spirits of the dead do not haunt places and such. This is true. The Bible tells us explicitly that when a person dies, they either go to a waiting place unto divine punishment, which is typically called hell, or a waiting place unto divine blessing, which was called Abraham's bosom, until such time as Jesus Christ rose from the dead. After that, of course, the Lord's people would go directly into the presence of the Lord. Everyone else would be in the waiting place called hell until such time that death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. I'm sorry I can't prove all of this this morning. We've talked about it before. It's in a lot of my messages and we'll get around to it again. We, we, I'm just trying to survey it this morning. And so it is indeed true that the spirits of the former living do not haunt this world. And yet, we see clearly an example in Scripture where the familiar spirit that was 
working with a human medium, was able to call a spirit up out of that place of rest temporarily with God's permission. And then we also can understand that these mediums can likely communicate with those who are in hell or in Abraham's bosom perhaps even in order to get information from them. This does not be, what, what, we, what we're saying here is that the spirits of the dead are not completely inaccessible. We see this in the passage of Samuel being called up. We also see in the New Testament, in Jesus' teaching of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, that those who burn in hell are yet coherent. The rich man, as he burned in hell, asking Father Abraham to parch his tongue, still knew that he had brothers, desired someone to be sent back to his brothers from the dead, to tell them. And of course, Abraham's response, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if one rose from the dead. Jesus Christ making a clear analogy to his own resurrection there. And so we recognize that, that the, the spirits of the dead are not necessarily um, unable to be communicated with. We see that there is a demonic realm that does act as a medium between the spirit realm and humans. The idea that men and women can consult with dead people through a medium of a demon is absolutely feasible, biblically. It's feasible. It's possible. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16, we transition to some New Testament teaching and we add a new wrinkle to the interaction between the spirit realm and the physical realm. From God, we see spiritual gifts that enabled men to do miraculous things as a means of validating the message of God. From the demonic realm, we see demonic possession was very prevalent in the New Testament times where a demonic being would literally take control of a man's body, take control of his actions, giving him supernatural abilities, often accompanied by lunacy, incoherent babbling, and the like. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16, we see the example of a woman who was possessed with a spirit of divination, in other words, she was able to tell people things that they would not otherwise know. The, there were men in the city who earned a great deal of money off of this woman. She was a tool that they used. People would pay to talk with her, to, to consult with her, whatever the case may be. People would pay to access her and to access her access to the spirit realm and they made a great deal of money off of her. The scriptures tell us by soothsaying. The power of the spirit realm as present in scriptures is very dramatic. We know the scriptural accounts of the prophets, men like Elisha and Elisha, their ability to tell the future, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. These aren't just stories, folks. This is truth. This is history. The Bible is true from cover to cover. We see the same thing in the New Testament. The apostles were able to heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead back to life. We see the power of those demonically possessed men and women able to throw themselves into the fire, break strong cords, literally superhuman abilities as you think of the demoniac of Gadara, as you think of, the, as we talked about this morning in our Sunday school hour, the demoniac in the synagogue. These things are historical accounts written in the Bible for our learning. But the question is, as we continue this morning, where does all this play into the world today? 
we've seen that in the time of the Bible, that several thousand years that the Bible was being recorded through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the spirit world was at work, both through God and His angels and through Satan and His demons. So the question is, where does it intersect with our world today? The diagram at the beginning. The material world, the spiritual world, where's that center for us today? Now, we have spoken before, and I'm not going to get in it today, the, our understanding of the spiritual gifts, particularly those gifts that we would call the sign gifts. We at Legacy Baptist Church believe that these gifts, well, we know that they existed, the scriptures tell us so, but we believe that their particular purpose is no longer valid or necessary in the church, and so we stand by the conviction that the sign gifts are no longer being used by God in this age. That has been explained thoroughly in my, pass- in my teaching in 1 Corinthians. Feel free to go back there and listen to it online if you would like to uh, hear all of what we have to say on that. That being said, we're, we're not insisting that God could not or would not ever use such gifts. We just do not believe they're a medium through which God regularly works in the church today. When it comes to things such as demonic exorcism, supernatural abilities to do things one would otherwise deem impossible, I'm afraid that your pastor lacks the authority to speak on these topics. I can tell you I've never seen it. Um, I can tell you I've heard a lot of stories. And I do, and we'll, we'll get there as we continue in this message, we, we know that the power of the demonic realm is still excessively active today. And yet, as far as um, the, the spiritual weapons of our warfare, all I can do is point us to Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll get there in just a little bit. And the weapons of Ephesians chapter 6 are spiritual weapons in every respect. And the most potent of which being the Word of God. There are so many claims in this world of information about divine power that missionaries and evangelists received by God to perform perform certain tasks. We do not doubt that God can do these things. We do not doubt that if God deemed it necessary, He would, in fact, do these things. But may I say this, and I believe um, this is is yet opinion. Um, This is not me drawing directly from Scripture. So please take it for what it's worth. You can disagree with me by all means. The topic of supernatural enablement unto spiritually effective tasks is not something that we should really pursue as believers. We don't see anything in Scripture where the Scripture teaches us to pursue supernatural enablement unto these sorts of super, uh, supernatural spiritual effective tasks such as casting out demons, such as um, you know, performing miracles and the like. If these things happen, and I'm not saying they don't, I believe it would be something spontaneous, supernatural, and unreproducible. Something used by God in a particular context for a particular reason. Unto His glory and for His purposes. But not necessarily something that somebody is inherently gifted with and can reproduce on demand. Pastor, how can you be so confident in this? Well, because, as I mentioned, the Bible does not tell us to pursue these sorts of manifestations of the Spirit. 
There's no biblical precedent that would imply that these types of supernatural enablements are natural or a common byproduct of the Christian relationship with God. We see examples, but we don't see such teaching. On the other hand, what does the Bible focus on? What are the spiritual manifestations that are emphasized all throughout the Gospels as essential to the Christian life and unto godliness, as essential to fighting this spiritual warfare? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Paul, as he teaches the contrast between the flesh and the Spirit, this is what he teaches. These are the virtues that he teaches. That should be significant to us. That Paul says, as we wage this war, we wage this war through these fruits of the Spirit. This, this is the manifestation of the Spirit acting in our lives the way He's supposed to. The regular manifestations of the Spirit of God have nothing to do with miraculous actions of divine origin, but rather, may I put it this way, miraculous virtues of divine origin. The emphasis of the New Testament in the context of miraculous actions was always about two things. Whenever we see miraculous actions, whether it's signs and wonders or healings or whatever it might be, they were always focused on two particular elements, authority and validation. That a person had God's authority and they were validating the truth of God's word. The prophets performed miracles as a validation to the message that was coming out of their mouths. The apostles performed miracles as a validation of the transition from Old Testament economy to New Testament economy. Authority and validation. On the other hand, the emphasis of the New Testament within the context of these divine virtues has always been about two things of its own. Obedience and submission to the Word of God. That as we obey God and we submit ourselves to His Word, this is what's going to happen. This is the manifestation of obedience to God's Word. And what I'm trying to say simply is this. There's nothing in the New Testament that implies that our attention should be focused on the performance of miraculous or superhuman deeds, but much rather on careful submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ and a fervent determination to take that gospel and to spread it to the world both in word and in deed. So what I'm asking you to do this morning is look at the Scripture with the same balance that the Scripture presents. That as the Scripture presents this realm and our place within the the realm of the spiritual and the material, we are called upon to show the virtues of Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Now, as we contend against the demonic realm, we are called upon to contend not with divine power, but more so with divine virtue. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18 says this. Just prior to this, or excuse me, uh, within this, so we can just read it. Put on the whole armor of God, Paul teaches, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, 
against rulers of the darkness of this world. Okay, so this is the context. Paul is teaching in the context of wrestling against the demonic realm, fighting the demonic realm, contending with the demonic realm. And this is how he says to do it. Against spiritual wickedness in high places, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Here, he sa- here, here it is. This is how you do it. This is how you wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. He says, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. Start with a complete devotion to truth. Recognize there is such thing as truth. Contend for truth. Love truth. Learn truth. And having on the breastplate of righteousness... <clears throat> be righteous. Don't just believe truth or stand for truth. Live truth. <clears throat> Excuse me. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Don't just believe truth. Don't just live truth. Preach truth. Above all, he says, okay, here we go. Now we're getting really important. Taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. We talked in 1 John 5 this Tuesday night. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. What is our faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of not seen. Where is our faith in this life rooted? It's rooted in the Word of God. He continues, and take the helmet of salvation. Certainly we need to be protected with salvation. And then he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. How is the spiritual battle against the demonic realm fought? Is it fought by rebuking spirits, as some teach? Well, I think that's not even just not right. That's that's explicitly wrong. Jude tells us that Michael the archangel would not even rebuke Satan, but he would say, the Lord rebuke thee. How dare these men get up behind a pulpit and say, you need to rebuke an evil spirit when Michael the archangel would not even dare rebuke an evil spirit. What is the weapon of our warfare? Well, the only weapon we see here is the word of God. Everything else is defensive in nature. Truth, righteousness, proclamation of the gospel, faith, salvation, prayer. Every day, we are fighting a spiritual battle. The enemies in this spiritual battle are not the people around us in this world. Our enemies are not sinners. Our Our enemy is not culture. Our enemy are not the liberals. It's not anyone in the government. It's not the pagan religions. This is not your enemy, this is your mission field. Okay? These are the people that we love. These are the people that we outreach to. These are the people that we seek to influence. Our enemies are the demonic powers that compel these men and women into their actions. And these enemies are not fought on a material plane. These enemies can only be fought with the weapons of warfare that God has ordained through Jesus Christ. These things being said, it's very important that you and I understand the ways that the demonic realm is influencing today. 
This is a big topic, far more even still than we could cover today. But as Christians, we inherently know about how God interacts with us. We know that. God interacts with us through His Word. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, has spoken in time past through the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 verse 1. So Jesus Christ is the means by which God has spoken in this day. He's not speaking through prophets. He's not speaking through mediums. He's speaking through His Word, through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 makes that clear as far as new revelation is concerned. But we often fail to consider how the demonic realm interacts with this world. And particularly in our Western culture, the influences of the demonic realm are, we might say, less evident, perhaps, than other parts of the world. Today in the United States, the influences of the spirit realm are a little bit more veiled than in other countries. In many African countries, and then countries like Haiti, countries like Papua New Guinea, strong and open demonic influences are indeed still at work. I have heard many first-hand accounts of, of great demonic powers and influences that are still at work because uh, they're able to have a foothold in those places. It's not so much that way in the Western world for various reasons which we won't get into today. Voodoo, cursing, spells and the like are still very common and we can't put our heads in the sand and pretend like these things don't exist. Now, I don't know, you know, the young man two weeks ago talked about levitating houses, those sorts of things. I don't know uh, about any of that. It's sufficient to say that the demonic realm is indeed strong and has been given delegated authority by God in this world. But what we do know from Scripture, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, we see that there was a demonic influence that was assigned to the world power of Persia. That as Daniel was praying to God, asking for revelation, when the angel finally came to him, he said that he had contended with a prince called the Prince of Persia. And this contention was so sharp that Michael the Archangel had to help this heavenly messenger fight the Prince of Persia so that this messenger could get to Daniel with the answer to his prayer. And the scriptures would then speak... Um, I'm probably getting... No, I'm not getting ahead of myself. The, the scriptures would then speak of the reality that the Prince of Persia was giving way to the Prince of Grisha. That as the nation of Persia lessened in power and the nation of Greece rose in power, that there would be a new demon that would be heavily influential in the events of the world. And as we look at this example, what we understand is that demonic powers are indeed busy seeking to influence society, seeking to influence culture, seeking to hold sway over world leaders. And as I close today, I would like us to think about some of the various ways, three this morning, that the demonic realm is active today. And the first of these ways is through spiritual mediums, we'll call them, spiritual mediums. I don't know how many of you know this, but the religion of witchcraft, in our age it's often called Wicca, is actually the second largest classified religion in the city of Minneapolis. Next to Christianity, Wicca is the second largest religious group of people in Minneapolis. 
Using mediums such as animal sacrifice, Ouija boards, seances, incantations, millions of men and women daily seek direct communication with the spirit realm, particularly the demonic realm. It's a fad and it has been for some time that young people of age of, we call young teens and and onward, um, seek to communicate with the demonic realm through many of these exercises. It is not uncommon to hear about the use of Ouija boards among high schoolers and junior hires. Say, what's a Ouija board? It's a board that has a pin on it and under certain circumstances you seek to communicate. You go through a process of seeking to communicate with a a demon and that demon will communicate back through this board. It's kind of like the demon can spell things out on the board and such. And um, these are not trivialities, folks. These mediums of communication, oftentimes heightened by mind-altering substances such as drugs and alcohol, have ushered these young people as well as older people, men and women, into the spirit realm, oftentimes to terrifying and potentially spiritually devastating consequences. Men and women, please know this. The spirit realm is very real. And the demonic realm is not something that you want to trifle with. It is not a place where God has ordained us to interact. God has called us to put on righteousness and truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ and to live it out in this world and to leave that to the fighting of God. We fight through truth. We fight through the gospel. We fight through the word of God. It's not a game. It is real. And the consequences of stepping into that realm can be dramatic. Parents, you need to inform your children of these dangers. You need to inform yourself of these dangers. You need to know the various ways that these dangers are being introduced to children today. The most prevalent right now being Harry Potter. Without a doubt, the the degree of specificity in Harry Potter as to not just the spirit realm, but specifically to the religion of Wicca is not an accident. But there are other ways that children are introduced to this realm as well. You need to be informed and you need to protect yourselves and your children. Young people, if you come across people engaged in activities such as seances and Ouija boards, just stay away. Don't be a part of it. Be a testimony. Be a light. Tell them why you won't be a part of it. Perhaps it will be a great step into the gospel of Jesus Christ, but just avoid it. Spiritual mediums, one of the ways in which it's still happening in this realm. Secondly, pagan religious practices. Very common way that the spirit realm manifests itself in the Western world is through pagan religious practices. It's common knowledge that many of the Near Eastern religions, particularly that of Hinduism, regularly seek to commune with the spirit realm. Now, this has been brought into not just modern American culture, but it has been brought into modern Christian culture now through various means. Please take note of these means. Transcendental meditation, yoga, contemplative prayer, walking a labyrinth, hypnosis, all methods used by pagan religions to put themselves in a state of receptivity to the demonic realm. 
We can pretend to spiritualize these things. We can pretend to Christianize these things. But what we are doing is we are taking pagan religious practices that have absolutely no foundation in anything that God would call worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, and we are imposing them upon religion for the sake of inclusion, for the sake of not offending people, for the sake of keeping people who are unbelievers in the church. It's dangerous. It's wrong. And we need have no part in it. Now, if you're in a yoga class that touches on nothing spiritual and everything having to do with stretching, or if you can watch a DVD that you, where you can mute the music if their music is seeking to put you in a state of um, meditation or whatnot, I'm not necessarily saying you need to, to skip out on your class. But what I'm saying is yoga as it pertains to the religious, and, and it's also martial arts. When, they, when it gets more religious than it does exercise, um, when, you, when you hit the religious realm of martial arts, it's the same pagan religious practices. It's an unfortunate reality that many of these pagan and godless practices have indeed found their way into the church as the church has attempted to merge the philosophies of Eastern mysticism with the Bible in order to produce a more meaningful way of finding God. The New Testament teaches us that it is our responsibility to pursue God with clarity and with distinction, deliberately seeking the manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power in us and through us through obedience and submission to the Word of God. God has revealed Himself. We don't have to find Him. He's right here. We have to pursue Him in His Word. But it's all here. God has revealed Himself already. Jesus Christ told us in John 14.6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We talked about Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 already. The New Testament nowhere teaches that our approach to God should be ambiguous. We are never, and this, this is what I mean by that, we are never called to empty ourselves in order that some spirit might fill us. We are called to empty ourselves of our pride, so that we can be filled with the Word of God. But we fill that empty void with the Word of God. We don't leave it empty for something else to fill us. That's just asking for trouble. These practices in their spiritual sense have no place in the lives of believers. Churches speak of listening to God's still small voice, seeking some mystical communication with God in this manner. But as I've said, everything that God wants us to know is in His Word. And while the Holy Spirit indeed does lay things upon our hearts, offer us peace in decision-making, other such blessings, God will objectively, His will, excuse me, is objectively stated in the Scriptures. And every other means of knowing God is nothing more than an outworking of the principles of God's Word as the Holy Spirit teaches and lays them upon our hearts. Spiritual mediums, pagan religious practices, the final and I would say without a doubt the most prevalent way that the spirit realm manifests itself in our culture is through music. For decades now, Satan has been using secular musicians as his prophets. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm stating that very, that's harsh, isn't it? It's pretty harsh. I'm not kidding at all. There's little mystery surrounding the idea that music has the capacity to bypass the intellect and drive straight to your emotions. We all know this to be true. We all know the power of music to influence us. At, at a ball game, the upbeat music 
stirs the crowd into a certain emotion. Movies can drive you to tears, can drive you to suspense, can drive you to relief through its music. Have you ever tried watching a suspenseful music movie muted? There's no suspense there. Have you ever tried to watch that scene that's supposed to make you teary-eyed, muted? There's no tears anymore. Because it's the music that is inducing in you that emotion. It is bypassing your intellect, bypassing your inhibitions, and bringing you to a place of emotional response. Even at Legacy Baptist Church, this is how we use music, is it not? Now, we don't necessarily bypass the intellect. Our music is doctrinally sound. But we are also seeking to prepare our hearts for the Word of God through the songs that we sing. We recognize the power of music, so we choose music that has the power to lead you Godward in order that you would be prepared through the music for the Word of God. And ladies and gentlemen, many musicians of the past century have been very open about the fact that their music is influenced by a force outside of themselves. It takes 15 minutes of research online to find the testimonies of musicians, secular musicians who say, yes, I sit down to write music, something comes over me and the music just gets written. I go out on stage, something comes over me and I sing in a way that I could never sing in practice. Something comes over me. Some of them have actually named their alter ego. Beyonce, we talked about in Sunday school this morning, has an alter ego that when she steps on stage, she says, it's not me on stage, it's Sasha Fierce is the name of her alter ego. She says, it's so different from me that I had to name it. What's going on there? Why is it that she, had, that, that she acts so different outside of her stage and on stage that she had to name her onstage persona? Could it be? Could it just possibly be that the onstage persona is more than just an altering of how she's acting? Could it be that something is indeed coming upon her and influencing her? Look, you listen to the music. You listen to the words of these songs. There's no question that it's not of God, right? With a lot of this music. So I'm not telling you something that you don't know. What I'm hoping to do is open your mind to where this, this evil might be coming from here. And the degree to which it might very well be influencing you or the world around you. The wrong type of music, and again, I'm going to be very dogmatic here. You can disagree with me and forgive me if, if I'm painting opinion too much as fact. The wrong type of music is a gateway drug into all that opposes God. Modern female singers prostitute themselves on stage. They don't dress that way for no reason. The godless lyrics of these songs, what are they pushing? Drinking, promiscuity, adultery, everything that opposes God. That's what these songs push. See how the music influences its listeners. Music is powerful. And Christians all around this country are allowing the secular music of this age to pour into their homes and to pour into the ears of themselves and their children. And it only takes a little bit of initiative, as I mentioned, to do the research to find out how much of this 
that I'm saying is, is substantiated in fact. I'm sorry I can't do it all this morning. I've taught on it before. It's called um, um, Lawful But Not Expedient. It was a series that I did last February, I believe. It's online. Today has been a bit more of a lecture than it has been a sermon. And it was necessitated perhaps by some confusion that two weeks ago might have led. But I trust that you have been reminded about and perhaps even introduced to some very important concepts. The spirit realm is real. It's alive. It's active today, both positively through God and negatively through Satan. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual and are definitively stated in Scripture as we pursue truth and righteousness and faith and above all, prayer, prevailing prayer. And as we do so, we become suitable tools in the hands of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to contend against the spiritual powers of the darkness of this world and to shine the light of the truth of God's Word into the hearts and minds of those who have been taken in the grasp of darkness. So if if we could perhaps say that there's an application today, let it be this. That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Long-suffering, temperance, meekness, faith, patience. That truth and righteousness and preparation of the gospel of peace and helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and prayer without ceasing are the weapons that God uses through us in this life to prevail against the demonic realm. 1 Peter 5.8 warns us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Let's not take these concepts lightly, but let's not let it keep us up at night because we serve a God that is greater than the world. Jesus Christ says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Let's allow that to comfort us as we seek to shine the light into the darkness of this world. Let's pray together.